Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Michael Veach is an author, actor and former ABC television and radio presenter. His critically acclaimed accounts of Australian airmen in World War II include 44 Days, Heroes of the Skies, Barney Great Tricks and The Battle of the Bismarck Sea. Today I'm talking to Michael Veach about his latest book, Australia's Secret Army, the story of the Coast Watchers, the unsung heroes of Australia's armed forces during World War II. Michael Veach, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks, Greg. Lovely to be here. Australia's Secret Army is the story of a group of men and women known as the Coast Watchers who were tasked to provide military intelligence during World War II in the Southwest Pacific. Now, that's an area very much in the news lately. Where did your interest in the Coast Watchers begin? I completed what I called a trilogy of books about Australia's involvement in the Pacific War because a few years ago I thought it's still such an underdone area of our history and it's an extraordinary history and people forget how dramatic and perilous it was for us. And so it was really a continuation of the exploration of what we did during those three or four very perilous years. And the thing about the Coast Watcher book is that it's the story of a group of civilians drawn into the military sphere, if you will. And that in itself, I think, is what drew me to it because it's a very different experience for people who are essentially untrained military people and civilians being asked to fight a war than it is for people who are trained to do so. Now, I'd like to talk about that aspect a little bit later, but let's delve into the background here. In the decades prior to World War II, what were Australia's naval intelligence capabilities? Well, they were pretty scant. It started in World War I and it was realised that Australia's border particularly its northern border, was completely porous. German ships, apparently, of the Kaiser's Navy used to sail up and down the western Australian coast, basically kind of laughing. The Kaiser's fleet could have sailed into Botany Bay before anybody knew they were there. And there were various reports about German warships, particularly in the west, in the northwest, sailing down and just having a look, and nothing could be done about them. And it was only weeks later that it was realised. So after World War One, they decided, well, look, we could do something about this, but, but of course, we're, we're actually a small and not particularly rich country as we were then, we, we, we don't have the resources to establish a permanent screen. The place is too big. It's the problem that still haunts us today, really. A Directorate of Naval Intelligence was established after World War I for this reason. The Royal Navy came out to Australia and realised that we were completely hopeless in terms of naval intelligence, and they set us up in the, in the early 1920s, and then we basically kind of just putted along under-resourced, other military arms traditionally distrust intelligence completely. I think it's still the same situation today. So it was realised because we don't have the resources to have permanent people keeping guard over our continent, particularly its border, we'll utilise civilians who are already in situ. So this organisation was established to employ, they didn't employ them, they basically ask for no fee, there was no remuneration of any kind, up and down and across the Australian northern and uh, northeast and northwest coastline, missionaries, postmasters, 
people in the clergy, policemen often, and people who had cattle stations up in Western Australia, just basically to keep an eye on things. If a strange ship appears on the horizon or starts sailing past, could you please report that? Could you please tell us what's happening? The only thing they were given was a special leave to use the telegraph system to uh, send an open telegram to Melbourne saying, strange ship located off Port Hedland last Thursday, heading south. And if they could give any more details, fine. So that was the genesis of it. And as they were watching the coast, the term coast watchers sort of naturally came into being. So it was a creaky, underfunded, underregarded intelligence, nascent intelligence organization until they finally realized that they needed something just before World War II. I was quite drawn to this quote in your book, democracies neglect their fighting services in peace and pay for that neglect many times over when the disaster of war strikes. And that seems to get right to the heart of what you were talking about there. And that's uh, a quote by Eric Felt in 1946 in his memoir. Who was Eric Felt and what part did he play in the Coast Watchers? The remarkable Eric Felt, really the father of the whole Coast Watching organisation. He didn't found it as such, but he led it brilliantly during the period in which this uh, uh, book covers. He was a Queensland son of Swedish immigrants who was uh, very bright at school, won a scholarship to Brisbane Grammar, but he was plucked out of that pretty early because he realised that the Australian Royal Australian Navy was about to open its first intake of cadets just before World War I, uh, in which he was one of the first class of cadets and they were taught in a house at Geelong of all places. He served in the Royal Australian Navy in World War I, didn't really do much, he was over in the North Sea and decided to take advantage of an offer to go up and become part of the administrative service of Australia's new territories spreading through New Guinea and uh, to an extent into the geographical Solomon Islands and bordering, bordering up to the British Solomon Islands. So that's where Eric Felt cut his teeth as an administrative officer. Loved the place, soon went on to the Big Island, which they called New Guinea, had all sorts of adventures, learnt pidgin English fluently, and was a brilliant colonial administrative officer, working as a sort of a quasi-policeman, a quasi-governor, I suppose, in the ranked administrative colonial system. When World War II started to approach, felt decided to put his name back on the naval reserve list. Rupert Cocky Long, the head of the um, naval intelligence in Australia, looked at his resume and said he's the ideal person to run the Coast Watcher organisation that we haven't quite got set up yet, but we need to because we reckon war is coming to the Pacific. And that was the beginning in the first week of the Second World War in 1939 when the Coast Watchers got into gear. He was told that he would have facilities at Port Moresby, which he didn't end up using. He was mainly on the Australian mainland. Um, he bolted through uh, Moresby and then up to the islands, Rabaul and New, New Britain, New Ireland, which is even more bizarre and prehistoric than New Britain back in the day. It was pristine, remote, primitive, absolutely ancient jungle. Uh, but there were a few villages dotted along and felt traveled through places like this on boat and plane, even by bicycle, hitchhiking. He was very persuasive and he visited all the planters and all the people that he knew and even didn't know and said, will you sign up to this organisation? So we're talking about parts of the Pacific where there's virtually no infrastructure, certainly no transport infrastructure and no communication infrastructure, or it was very limited. 
Coast Watchers needed to communicate the intelligence that they were gathering. What kind of technology were they employing to do that? Enter the AWA 3B Teleradio. This was basically a radio, the size and weight of a small family car. Um, it had its own petrol engine to power two car batteries. The dimensions really of a bed built by AWA, it was leased by AWA who had the monopoly, came in about four parts, all cast iron enameled boxes that all plugged into each other. There was, I said, the engine, the batteries. For its time, it was actually kind of brilliant. There was no way of making it smaller, given the technology of the time. And when I'm talking transistors, this is 20 years before transistor investors. This is valves and seals and, and Bakelite and, and, and cloth-covered wire. And that was the basis of communication. So the Coast Watchers were selected to be a people who could who were reliable, people who lived in the area, and people who were equipped with one of these radios. It soon turned out that there were not nearly enough radios. And one of the things Felt did was to lobby the government through uh, Rupert Cocky Long to say, we need more of these radios. Give us some radios. So, so the government reluctantly forked out a few thousand pounds to commission Adelaide to buy a few more. But that was the technology. Now, of course, everything changed with the attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941. What did that mean for the Coast Watchers? Well, suddenly the war, which had hitherto been a faraway experience, came to the Pacific. Even Pearl Harbor didn't kind of shake the reality of people in New Guinea and the Solomons, because even though the Japanese were pretty obviously heading that way, it took a long time to convince people that you are soon going to be in a war zone and your job as a coast watcher is going to pivot from being a, a casual observer, if you choose to stay, to a spy operating in war behind enemy lines against an enemy whose ruthlessness and bloodthirstiness and brutality was inconceivable. And that's what happened. So that's what Pearl Harbor meant. It meant suddenly the job of the Coast Watchers transformed overnight 180 degrees completely. Now, there's a lot of individuals who contributed to the gathering of intelligence. They were operating under some pretty severe conditions, as you've indicated. There's a, quite a lot of names here. Lee Grant Vile, Jack Reed, Paul Mason, Warwick Clemens, Cornelius Conn Page. Tell me a little bit about their contributions. I'll start with one of the saddest. Conn Page was a Coast Watcher stationed by himself. He was stationed on a tiny little island off New Ireland. His job was to keep a watch on the northern approaches to New Ireland and New Britain and the mainland of New Guinea itself. Japan didn't take long at all to begin their expansion, their rapid 100-day expansion from Pearl Harbour, which when you look at the territory in terms of square hundreds and thousands of kilometres, they expanded into. They celebrated it uh, with a special dawn ceremony as they crossed the equator on their ships heading south to invade Rabaul. Con Page was stationed at this time. They'd started sending aircraft over to initially reconnoiter. Then they sent bombers as they got closer to actually attack the, the port of um, Rabaul, which they desperately wanted and needed. Con Page was caught up in this and was regularly delivering detailed briefs, two or three a day, telling of Japanese mainly aerial activity and in February, as the invasion army was approaching New Britain, Eric Felt, who was the recipient of these 
incredibly important messages center page you have to get out it's time to evacuate and he refused to do so he stayed at his post one of his last messages was reporting a ship coming into his little harbor a message was sent back for god's sake hide it was known that he was captured and executed a few months later by the japanese on rabaul the two other fellows you mentioned jack reed and paul mason are probably the two most famous coast watchers who worked in tandem in bougainville which even though is geographically a part of new, of the solomons is politically part of new guinea further south where the solomon islands begin is where paul mason was operating so these two fellows had an extraordinary time jack reed was a kind of a dashing handsome six foot tall garrulous bloke paul mason on the other hand was short kind of overweight um uh, slightly old for the job had buck teeth and um, had spoken a kind of a squeaky voice as an effect of many bouts of malaria having worked up in the islands for many decades prior to becoming a coast watcher they were both plantation owners colonial administrators before the war they both elected to stay and remain on duty but of course they became the primary coast watchers operating behind the japanese lines uh, paul mason perhaps gave one of the most famous coast watching messages of the pacific when on the morning in early june 1942 when the american invasion of guadalcanal took place he noticed a big squadron of japanese betty bombers going over and he radioed he warmed up his big tele radio from the camp where he was uh, situated overlooking things high up so we could hear he could have viewed the approaches paul mason tapped out five of the most important words of the pacific 25 bombers heading yours the message was directed to the americans it was relayed via port moresby townsville canberra then was beamed by long wave over to hawaii who then broadcast it to their ships they had uh, nearly an hour's warning to stop the embarkation, pull up the ships, um, pull back, scramble the wildcat fighters of the um, of the USS Wasp over the horizon and the Japanese bombing force that were expected to arrive with complete surprise. Basically, it was met at high altitude by the by the Grumman wildcat fighters and it was a they had no fighter escort and, and it was a massacre for them. Paul Mason continued to operate for months, always having to be on the run. Many of the Coast Watchers were chased by the Japanese. When the Japanese started to realize how important the intelligence they were giving their, the Allies was, they tried to track them down and they tried all sorts of coercive means to do so. In some instances, they were successful, but in many cases, the Coast Watchers got away with it. Of course, it wasn't just men who made up the Coast Watchers. There's some remarkable women amongst them too. Two stand out, Sister Merle Farland and Ruby Boy. Tell me about them. Officially, there was only one female Coast Watcher, indeed, Ruby Boy, and she was the wife of a plantation owner over on Vanakoro, which is one of the remotest of the Solomon Islands. It's a volcanic, crazy place. It's in the storm belt of the southern solomon islands but strategically very important ruby was a middle-aged lady who had done nothing like this of course in her life but when a coast watcher was placed on vanakoro he basically decided he didn't want to be a coast watcher and resigned and joined the rwaf instead because he wanted to be a pilot ruby boy said to eric felt well i'll take over and what she did was mainly relay messages 
from Coast Watches closer to the battlefields, direct to Australia. Her contribution was absolutely vital. She also delivered vital weather reports. So the Americans particularly knew what they were getting into when, when they were sending ships up there because the weather was very unpredictable. The Japanese knew she was there. They tried to find where she was living, but couldn't quite get there. Ruby uh, one day was completing her daily weather report when an incoming, which was very rare because mainly it was a one-way transmission, and all she heard was quite clearly a Japanese or a foreign-sounding accent saying, Mrs. Boy, we are looking for you. We know where you are. We advise you to leave now. Japanese commander, click, and that was the end of the message. So there's this woman in this remote island, knowing the Japanese were at least onto her, knew her frequency, and were giving her a very direct threat. Ruby was actually greeted by Admiral Halsey once when he, towards the end of the war, he made a detour to fly in to her lagoon above which where she lived in her plantation house with her husband to greet her. The other woman you mentioned, Merle Farland, was a New Zealand nurse who came over to South Georgia. There's a story of another coast watcher having to actually pass by her missionary station on his way to actually get a radio repaired. And he was greeted not just by the pastor, but by this rather elegant woman in a pristine white nurse's uniform. And he nearly he nearly fell over because nobody knew that, that there was like a Western woman in this battle zone. And she had some extraordinary adventures, the most uh, um, gallant of which was when she was told that a B-17 had gone down in the sea on the other side of her island, which was a big island. And... Uh, a lot of the men were in need of medical care and she had to get there. She actually overrode the, her pastor saying, look, because he said, I'll go, you mind the radio station. And she said, no, you mind the radio station. And she, through her network of um, native bearers, she was escorted across. She'd waded through swamps, waded through mud. It took two days to get there and found these American B-17 crew. She was able to administer some medical assistance to a couple of the guys before they were then picked up by Catalina. An amazing woman and unrecognised. Went back to New Zealand and lived a quiet life and no one asked her about it again until she was 80, apparently. And that leads me to my final question. It's, it's about this group of remarkable men and women, but how have they been remembered? Not very well. Um, about 30 Coast Watchers lost their lives during the Second World War. A memorial was put in place in the 60s in Port Moresby and Rabaul, but not much else. And I think one of the trouble is, Greg, because the name Coast Watchers is in many ways, I think, erroneous because it's such a passive term. They weren't just watching the coast. They were doing far more dangerous activities than that and had a far greater bearing on the outcome of the war. Admiral Halsey said the Coast Watchers saved Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal saved the Pacific. He, the Americans gave the Coast Watchers far more recognition than did the Australians, sadly, and that's often the case. They were awarded decorations by the Americans. I think Paul Mason was awarded the American Distinguished Service Cross. The Australians gave him absolutely zip and nothing. Eric Felt had to fight for a proper pension after the war, which the Australian government was reluctant to give him. So it was still seen for decades after the war as having not done much. That's one of the reasons I've written the book, because they do need to be remembered, I think. Well, it's certainly a fascinating story. And thank you for sharing the story. And thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks, Craig. It's been a great pleasure.
I've been talking to Michael Veach about his book, Australia's Secret Army. It's published by Hachette, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.